We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I'd invite you to follow along in your actual physical Bible or on your device using the YouVersion or some other Bible app. The YouVersion would give you our whole bulletin um, and also has a very good Bible app and all sorts of fun features, or on your TV. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I think one of the oddest things about Christian teaching is what we teach about suffering. And yet, it's one of the most beautiful parts of Christian theology because it's so thick and good and powerful. I believe our explanation of suffering and what to do in it and what to do about it is incredibly beautiful and helpful, though it can be a little on the nose to hear at times. Peter is encouraging these seven areas full of small churches where it was illegal to say Jesus is Lord about their suffering in light of the kingdom and the gospel. And for me, this text feels like being on an airplane that changes altitude quickly or a roller coaster. That, um, I feel like he's so mundane. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And then he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So like subjects or servants be subject to your masters. And then like flying high theologically and then coming down to the middle, describing that situation. And then flying back up for now you were straying, for you were straying like sheep and now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Kind of flying middle there. For what credit is if when you sin and are beaten for it, so he can see being beaten, so flying a little lower, and you endure it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, flying right back up. Peter is helping them engage and deal with and think about and be gripped by the gospel in the very moment when we're verbally attacked. This word revile is like verbal abuse, but picture someone saying it in the 70s before everybody used this phrase all the time, right? Verbal abuse. I, I like the word reviled both because we don't use it. We kind of know what it means. What does it look like to trust God in the very moment that you're verbally attacked? 
That's what Peter's giving them encouragement on. And because of the beauty of the gospel, to give them that encouragement, Peter is going to talk about the shepherd and overseer of their souls and the glorious beauty of the fact that we were once straying like sheep, but have been returned. Not because we were like, ooh, I should return, but because he came and got us. Essentially, Peter talks about two or three options here when someone verbally attacks. Well, we can respond with kindness, or we respond in kind, and then we have other Christian scriptures to lead us in what to do about that moment. But we need to back up and look for just a second at something. And this is a humbling part of Christian tradition. There are a lot of things about Christian tradition that, that ought to humble us. Most of it happened after it became legal to be a Christian, then illegal not to be a Christian. All the ensuing mixtures of Christianity, especially when it gained power, for it is not supposed to be a form of power. What am I talking about? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, even if you're being beaten. These verses have been used to uh, defend slavery in the United States starting in about 1619, and then even after slavery was illegal to, um, to both form and condone Jim Crow laws. And there are all sorts of things to say about that, and there are all sorts of cultures where slavery has existed, and slavery still exists. There is both legal and illegal slavery in the United States now through the way that at least um, strip clubs work. We can talk more about that if you'd like. We've had different presentations on it. We think one of our roles as a church is to offer retreat at our retreat house for those workers that are working to end slavery because it still exists. This particular word for slave is oiketai, oikos, like house. So this is someone that worked in a house. We don't know if this is someone that was uh, enslaved for a lifetime. That would be an andropon slaves. These words kind of overlap. We don't know if this is a doulos, which is someone that might have chosen slavery to get a friend or a family member or themselves out of debt. And to Peter's point, if you feel like Peter's... Um, a little on the nose about how to endure suffering. The reason, part of the reason he states it that way is oftentimes a doulos, a bond servant, which in Oikatai could have been a doulos or an antropon. You following me on all these Greek words? This is fun, right? All these Greek words? Sometimes a doulos entrusted themselves to a family for six, seven years and became very close with the family. And after they purchased their freedom or the freedom of the family member, they stayed on and became as part of the family. Some people don't like the way that the Bible pushes back on slavery. They want it to be much more explicit and to understand our 21st century culture or 17th or 18th or 19th century culture. And yet, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul says, if you are able to be free, be free. The book of Philemon is a uh, very subtle but clear if you're willing to understand Paul's sardonic tone. Very opposed to it. But what's humbling about this is Christians have got it wrong sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. George Whitfield, one of the uh, most lovely preachers of the 18th century, got it wrong. Charles Spurgeon, one of the best preachers of the 19th century, got it right and would actually refuse to serve communion to anyone in the 19th century who participated in the slave trade. This humbles us, and we need to notice it 
It's part of our history, and like so many other things, personally and collectively and historically, we're humbled by that. But what is Peter's point? Why is he writing about this? Well, to me, it feels like a roller coaster. To talk about how to deal with being verbally abused at the same time that we're talking about Jesus suffering, that he bore our sins on his body. What Peter's actually doing is he doesn't want us to feel like we're on a roller coaster theologically. He wants us to be prepared for that moment. I know a lot of actual soldiers, and I am not an actual soldier, so I put that image up a little hesitantly. But Peter wants us prepared for the very moment that someone attacks us verbally, and he believes that understanding that we have been saved, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we've been healed by his wounds, that we were straying like sheep and now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, empowers us to suffer. This section of scripture is not about servants and masters as much as it's about suffering. There are nine references and eight verses to the kind of suffering, to one of the kinds of suffering that we will experience in this world. And Peter's hoping that we'll continue entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly as Jesus did so that we learn patient endurance, so that we become formed into people that are both patient and can endure. And there's all sorts of things to talk about in terms of whether we should stay in that relationship or whether it's wise or how do we confront our boss when we're attacked unjustly or how do we confront our employer, when, employee when they attack us unjustly. There are other texts for those things. It is not just simply go into every abusive situation you can find and then try and put this on for size. But when this happens, here's our text. There are two ways to understand uh, Peter's reference to patient endurance. One is that when we are grown by the Holy Spirit into patient endurance, that in and of itself is a sign of grace. The other uh, way of thinking about it is that um, we will receive a reward for acting with patient endurance in this life and in the next. My 12-year-old never falls for a false dichotomy, so I am learning that maybe it's both. Maybe the Holy Spirit indwelling us and growing us up in patient endurance is both a gift and something we'll be rewarded for. And we don't do it to be rewarded, but it is a lovely part of our hope. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Peter's preaching about the moment. He's not writing to give you a five-year plan of what to do in your vocation, especially if you have a, a bad boss. He's preaching about the moment. He, even as he's writing it, his voice is going up and down, and he's expecting us to be so gripped by the fact that we've been called by God that we'll act kindly when your boss takes you into her, his office, and cusses you out. How have you responded to that in the past? Perhaps you responded kindly. And kindness isn't simply to not respond in kind. It might also be to come back and return to the conversation later and discuss how you were poorly treated. Again, there's more to say about that, utilizing probably the Proverbs, Jesus' teachings on loving enemy, because when someone verbally abuses you, they're acting like an enemy. 
And we have the Psalms for our prayer life there, and we have guidance on that. But Peter's point is, you're being grown in patient endurance. In many ways, this is his version of um, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Things that were grown in all at once, and it takes a while. Fruit, not fruits. In some ways, this is a shorter version of 1 Corinthians 13, the definition by description of love. Exiles who have received the grace and mercy and peace of Jesus learn to suffer. So I don't know what that looks like in your life to continue entrusting him, self, to him who judges justly. This is what Christ did, but is given as a model for us. I don't know what it looks like in your place of business. Maybe that's all electronic right now. Who's sick of Zoom meetings? I don't know what it looks like if you're able to gather with family. Maybe that's not going to happen in the short term, but man, if you are with 10 of your family members, especially extended family, what are the chances that no one verbally attacks you? Maybe zero. Great, great. I'm so happy for your family. But I think this text is something we experience. And Peter taught, I mean, Peter talks about sometimes we suffer justly, meaning we cause the problem that the person is attacking us over. And he's saying that's different. My first boss at Riverside Church pointed out to me that I was making his life harder, and he was right. I'm not sure the meeting needed to take 90 minutes, but he was right. And so I learned something different from that than I learned when someone attacks me and they're wrong. And usually I know they're wrong, so I'll ask some elders or some other people or some friends about it. Well, Peter's describing that situation. He has all sorts of other fun stuff to say. We'll start talking about submission next week, everybody's favorite word. But here he's talking about the times that you've been attacked unjustly. And what we learn to do is suffer well with patient endurance. That's not the only thing that we do. But it is part of the Christian life. And we wait, right? And this is so biblically interesting. The tone of this book is so urgent. And the reason it's so urgent is the same reason that so much of our apocalyptic teachings are urgent. And you're like, what are apocalyptic teachings? Mark 13, Revelation, 1 Thessalonians. Because we would wait in the wrong way. We need to learn to wait the right way, but we would wait to be generous. We would wait to learn to patiently endure when we're suffering and then to respond Christianly. We would wait to be generous with our stuff. We would wait to forgive. If not for the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul in 1 Thessalonians to write with urgency, and Peter here to write with urgency, and James to write with urgency. If you're James in a while, man, it's a diatribe. Peter's probably writing this in 62, 63 AD. The next year, there's going to be unrest in Rome, and largely the Christians are going to pay for it in 64 AD. Peter didn't know everything about that, though he had some sense of it. That's why in 1 Peter 5, he describes himself as writing from Babylon. Most scholars think that was Rome, and he understood it apocalyptically. My point is, we're both waiting and not waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to return. Peter, I think, would have been shocked, shocked to find out that there would be Christians in Connecticut 
so encouraged by his letter because we have been grieved by various trials, haven't we? But I don't think he thought he was writing for more than 10 years into the future. There's this interview with C.S. Lewis that I saw a number of years ago. It's one of the few videos I've ever seen of him. By the way, if you watched the movie about him, Anthony Hopkins doesn't get it right. He's a terrific actor. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But he didn't understand that C.S. Lewis was a really joyful, funny, loud person. And in this interview, someone asked him if he thought his books would be remembered in five years. And he just started laughing. He'd be so encouraged to know that people continue to see Jesus in Aslan, the lion, and that people like me continue to find his answers to the questions of the with God life clear. But he did not expect that to happen, and I don't think Peter did either. And yet the Holy Spirit inspired him to write a text not to us, but for us. And we are to wait, not to act like a Christian, but wait on Christ's return, which he references many, many times in 1 Peter. And the reason that the letter is so urgent is because we would naturally wait to forgive and to be generous. We would either uh, not respond in kind when criticized, and we would do so condescendingly, or we would respond in kind, both of which are the opposite of what Peter is telling us the Holy Spirit will grow us in, which is to patiently endure with people which again is not the only thing that we do. In verse 21, he says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What are we called to? What's the this? He doesn't say it here. You know, in, in the first century when they were reading this, they didn't have iPhones, they had Blackberries, and they, their attention spans were longer than us. They didn't have Blackberries, I just wanted to say that. Their attention spans were longer than us. So when they read a circular letter, they hung on to the words. For us, because our attention spans about eight seconds, we have to go back to the text to learn these things. So when Peter says this, I think one of the things he's referring to is chapter 2, verse 9. Look back just a little bit. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession— that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. What's the this? Proclaim the excellencies of him. How do we do that? By learning from the Holy Spirit, patient endurance, and then letting it shape and form our interactions with others. And we don't do this because of the reward, but there is a reward. We do this because we have been brought into a kingdom. And I know I talk about the kingdom all the time, but it's so important. Jesus didn't show up on the scene and said, everybody needs to get saved so they can go to heaven. Jesus said, there's a kingdom available to you now. And yes, heaven's part of that, but it's part of it. And so often Christians partly for, for reasons that we would sympathize with, but also misunderstanding the gospel, think it's about getting saved and getting others saved. And that's so important, but what are they saved into is a kingdom life now. The reason that we learn to respond with patient endurance to those that attack us is because we've been brought into a kingdom. And we are to proclaim the excellencies of it. And yet, we will also be rewarded 
or recompensed for that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was very comfortable saying, your father will reward you. I'm going to paraphrase for a second, for acting like a Christian. In Revelation 21, when Jesus returns, he says, I am bringing my recompense with me. We do not forgive quickly, act generously with our things, learn to patiently endure those that would verbally attack us so that we are rewarded. We do it because of the kingdom and because we're commanded to by the king. But it is part of our hope that when we have suffered, God will recompense us for that in the new heavens and the new earth. Servants suffer and they wait on their shepherd. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. Because he is God. He didn't need you. He, was, he existed in the Trinity, had community. He didn't need you. But he desired to create because he's a creator. And he loves you because you're you and he is him. But then, Adam and Eve brought the curse into the world through stopping trusting him. So what did he do? Bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And I don't think righteousness is a cool word. Maybe we could recover it though. On my down days, one of the things I am most thankful for in the Christian life is that I know what to do. And we don't follow first. We receive and trust his love and the work of Christ and the pursuit of the Holy Spirit. But then, as we receive it, we begin to act like one who's received it. And it, it's described throughout the Bible how to act. That's what living to righteousness is with our bodies, with our words, with our time, with our stuff. I'm so thankful that we are called to live to righteousness. And I hope that you are too. For you were straying like sheep, verse 25, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Most of the people Peter's writing to, scholars believe, were Gentiles who came to be followers of Christ, some Jews, and that meant that they had no knowledge of God until they heard the gospel and received it and trusted it and learned it. What good news this is. Three different verb tenses here. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Sorry, two verb tenses. It's odd, this odd transcendent statement because we're not positive when we weren't straying anymore, even if we have kind of a relative sense of it. That's how gracious God's love is. It came after us. How lovely now that we have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Such good news. Why? He did it because he loves you. Because he is love. But to what purpose? I think that's explained a little bit here, but it's also explained in verse 5. What is God doing with you, follower of Christ? Hear this verse again. Chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To me, the most humbling part of the gospel is not that God loves me, though that's humbling and delightful. It's not that Jesus took all of the wrath of God on himself, bore our, our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's not the most humbling, though that's lovely and humbling. To me personally, what's most humbling is we are called to be agents of that. And one of those kinds of agency is receiving the truth that you, follower of Christ, are right now being built into a house. What's a house for? It's for the security of your neighbors. It's for their shalom. It's a home, a place of love and laughter and feasting. You are becoming a kingdom outpost or being grown in these ways that Peter describes because you're an agent of his until he returns. Which is encouraging, I think. And if you already knew all this, I hope that you were encouraged by it. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, father us through just and unjust suffering that we might live like your followers, dead to sin and alive to your righteousness. We praise and thank you that your wounds have healed us. We praise and thank you that we were straying, but you came and got us and that we are now returned to the shepherd and overseer. Those of us who call you Lord, and Father, I ask for the one who is considering your gospel. I ask that they would continue to consider it as a human being, intellectually, that they would ask good questions of their friends who are followers of Christ. And for those that are already trusting you, Lord, would your word encourage them? For we have indeed been grieved by various trials, Lord. They're not new to you, nor are they a surprise, but we have been grieved. So we ask, shepherd and overseer of our souls, would you tend to our frayed and tired and tattered souls for your glory, the good of our neighbor, and for our own good. Amen.